Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. As this is an episode of the special series, A Seat at the Table, I am joined today by a special guest. And even though I've had many special guests on here, this one is particularly special because it is actually my husband, Alex. Alex, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me, Jerry. I'm honored to be here. Uh, hope I don't mess up too badly. I'm excited <laughs> to hear more about this character that we're going to talk about today, uh, but just really happy to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you here. So just to let our listeners know, this actually came, this idea resonated from Eric of the Ranking 76 podcast. We actually had a, a chance to connect outside of recording and so he got to meet alex and suggested at one point he was like it would be great to just have alex as a guest on presidencies i'd love to hear that and so i asked alex if he would be willing he's read numerous opening quotes for the podcast from time to time and he has been a supporter behind the scenes but i asked him if he'd like to help with recording and sit in this seat. So he agreed. I think that he is going to bring much insight and perspective to this episode. And I can't wait for him to be able to talk through with me this cabinet member. But before we get started, I'll give Alex a chance to just introduce himself to all of you. Well, thank you, Jerry. Uh, So as he mentioned, I am his husband, Alex Slauson. We've been together, uh, I guess as a couple for 20 years, formerly or formally, should I say, as a married couple for, wow, going on 12 years now, nearly 12 years in August. In terms of what I do for a living, I'm a learning business partner. Uh, So I'm in the the learning and HR space. History was never really um, a focus for me, mainly because it was never made interesting by the teachers that I had. But Jerry has this amazing gift to make history interesting. So that's why when he asked if I wanted to be on the show, I was like, you know what? Let's give it a try. So here I am. Well, I'm glad to have you here. But I also know this isn't your first time on a podcast because you were on a podcast, I think it was like a year, two years ago, about leadership. 
Yes, it was a leadership podcast hosted by a former colleague of mine uh, from a couple of companies ago. And uh, yeah, that was a really cool experience as well. And um, we potentially have another podcast appearance uh, coming up with another podcaster in a similar space. So uh, yeah, this is good stuff. Absolutely. I'm not Mike shy. (laughs) Absolutely. I know you can do this. And like we've talked about, you know, this really is just... I've done the research. I'm going to present the information. As always, please feel free to chime in, to give your insight, to ask questions. That's what we're here for. You are the audience's representative here. Oh, I thought I was going to be the king of snap judgment. (laughs) Well, that too. (laughs) Okay. I think you can handle that. Challenge accepted. So for our listeners, I have already told Alex who we are going to be talking about because I wanted to go ahead. He's not necessarily used to podcasting, so I wanted to not make it quite so trepidatious for him. So he does know that we will be talking about Paul Hamilton. But Alex, did you know anything about Paul Hamilton when I initially told you that this was going to be his episode? Absolutely not. I did cheat. I will be honest. I cheated. Um, There's not a lot on him, but I did go to, there's a profile page of him on the history.navy.mil website. And it's about a paragraph. So it kind of just lists his accomplishments from being the comptroller of South Carolina, governor of South Carolina. And then of course, what we're going to be talking about today, uh, secretary of the Navy in President Madison's cabinet. So that's pretty much all I know. Well, we will get to that and much more. And I say, let's go ahead and get started. Okay. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So Paul Hamilton was born at Willtown in St. Paul's Parish, which is now in modern day Charleston County, South Carolina, on October 16th, 1762. And Alex, this is one of the reasons why I wanted you on this episode, because of course we live in North Carolina. So we've got our cousins on the other side of the border in South Carolina. So I figured this would be a good Carolina connection. A Kakalaki connection. <laughs> the Kakalaki connection. <laughs> so St. Paul's Parish included land on the mainland between the South Edesto and Stono Rivers, which is to the southwest of modern-day Charleston. Willtown, which is also known as Wilton or New London, was on the South Edesto River and was established around 1804. From what I've been able to find out about it, it looks like Willtown was occupied up to the late 19th century but is now designated on the National Register of Historic Places as a historic settlement site. So Hamilton was the only son to survive to adulthood of Archibald Hamilton and Rebecca Branford Hamilton. Now, an odd thing that I found, but would have to do more in-depth research to learn more about, is that according to the University of South Carolina Libraries listing for his papers contained in their collections, Both Archibald and Rebecca passed away in 1766 when Paul was either three or four. Mm. Now, if this is true, I haven't been able to find who actually raised him 
And as there was another note in this listing about his ultimately inheriting his father's lands, it also notes that was after he had begun his career as a planner with another property. So part of me wonders if this was just a typo and at least one, if not both of his parents lived longer. But that was just an interesting thing. It's like, you know, what happened here? And of course, Hamilton, as you said, Alex, he's not somebody who there's a lot of information immediately available about him. So I would have to do much more in-depth research to figure this out. I just didn't have time for this episode. Okay. But we do know that he was educated in a formal manner up to the age of 16. But sources differ as to whether his education was cut short either by the coming of the revolution or by his family suffering a financial setback. Now, honestly, this could have been a yes and situation because, of course, the family's financial setback could have been due to the revolution. But again, it's one of those things, conflicting reports, but it could be that both of these were the case. So shortly after the revolution began, Hamilton volunteered for service in the South Carolina militia. He would see action at the Siege of Savannah, Georgia in 1779 and in the Battle of Camden in 1780. And he went on to serve under Colonel William Hardin and participated in the capture of a British garrison named Fort Balfour in Beaufort County, South Carolina. But with the Battle of Yorktown and Cornwallis' surrender in late 1781, things started winding down with the Revolutionary War, and Hamilton, as well as many others, were able to resume their civilian lives. So we're going pretty quickly through a large swath of American history, but, Mm -hmm. you know... It's one of those things, and especially for folks who were younger during that time, there really isn't as much to talk about. But after the war, Hamilton worked to build up his plantation operations. Now, at some point, Hamilton transitioned from the area of St. Paul's Parish and moved up to the Beaufort area, to the northeast of Charleston, between that city and modern-day Myrtle Beach on the coast. He would ultimately establish an estate known as the Rhodes Plantation in the Grays Hill area just outside of Beaufort, but it's difficult to tell when exactly this happened from the sources I found. Okay. Now, Hamilton is noted as being an indigo and rice planter, and though I was unable to find exact numbers, we can say with certainty that this planting and harvesting was done by enslaving individuals for their labor. Of course. Of course. And so this is going to be something that as we get to the end and start evaluating his life and legacy, this is going to be part of that conversation. Okay. But he also started a family shortly after the end of the war, as he and Mary Wilkinson were wed in 1782. They had at least seven children that I was able to find, all of whom lived to adulthood. But of course, there could have been other children along the way as well, some that may have not survived to adulthood. Just don't really know, but these were the seven that I was able to find. Mm -hmm. Now, we know that he was still in St. Paul's Parish up to 1786 as he entered public service there around that time. In 1785 and 1786, Hamilton served as the tax collector for St. Paul's Parish, and in 1786 also served as a justice of the peace. According to one source, he served in this latter role until 1790. Now, as we've seen in other episodes of the special series, this was a time where, you know, offices weren't necessarily a full-time commitment, and so you would have the same person in multiple offices at the same time. And so in 1787, he was elected to the South Carolina House of Representatives and served in that body until 1789. 
1788, Hamilton was chosen to be part of the South Carolina State Ratification Convention, which ratified the U.S. Constitution and made South Carolina the eighth state to join the Union on May 23rd. Starting in 1794, Hamilton served in the South Carolina State Senate, though it's unclear whether or not this was, as one source said, over several non-consecutive terms. But we do know that in 1799, he was chosen as the comptroller for the state of South Carolina and would serve in this role for five years until he was chosen for a new office, that of governor of South Carolina. Okay. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, he goes from making it rain to making the rules. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. You know, he's he's had enough time with the money. Now he's ready to rule. Mm Mm-hmm. So I found little of note in terms of Hamilton's tenure as governor, but the National Governors Association's entry for Hamilton does mention that the U.S. Congress had considered attacks on the importation of enslaved individuals during Hamilton's tenure. However, the South Carolina State Legislature had apparently put its own tax on the importation of enslaved individuals in place during the tenure of Hamilton's predecessor, and thus they threatened to repeal it if Congress passed its tax, and thus the federal government dropped the idea. Now, I can't speak to the validity of this, but I do have to admit that hearing the Jeffersonian-era Congress propose a tax at this point just doesn't sound right to me. We know that Jefferson and his supporters were primarily anti-tax, and so this just doesn't really make sense. And also, you know, why would their threatening to repeal the state tax have any impact on what was happening on the national level? It just seems like there may be more to the story than I was able to find. But of course, this is getting beyond our purposes today in this episode. Okay. But Hamilton left office as governor on December 9th, 1806, turning over the office to Charles Pinckney, who had served in the post twice before, in addition to tenures as a U.S. senator and as U.S. minister to Spain. I've heard of Charles Pinckney. Yeah, I was about to say. So we've actually been to the Charles Pinckney National Historic Site in South Carolina. So Mm -hmm. we actually have this connection to this guy. Yeah. Yeah. With this return to private life, Hamilton fades from history until James Madison wins in the 1808 presidential election and starts to put together his cabinet. Now, I know you're probably like, oh, we're already at his cabinet tenure. (laughs) This this was pretty quick. (laughs) Yeah. Hey. Moving on up, right? Moving on up. (laughs) I mean, you know, here we go. You got into the state legislature. You got into the comptroller, governor, and now secretary of the Navy. Now, why he ended up in this position is something to discuss. So, first of all, Madison had, albeit reluctantly, chosen Robert Smith, who had been Jefferson's secretary of the Navy, as his secretary of state. And so this meant that the Navy Department needed a new head. That position was vacant. So that's another name that sounds familiar, but of course I'm going to make a bad joke. It's not Robert Smith from The Cure, is it? It is not Robert Smith from The Cure. Okay. But if anybody would like to learn more about Robert Smith, if you haven't listened to his Seat at the Table episode, please check it out. Zach from Drinks with Great Minds in History and I had a great conversation about him Quite a character. There's so much to discuss, but, you know, 
suffice it to say what we need to know about him for this episode is that he was the previous office holder at the Navy Department. Mm-hmm. And now that he's moving to state, this position is vacant. You know, I was kidding, by the way. I, I, I've heard of Robert Smith in terms of the historical figure. I do. And that's so for our listeners, you know, as much as you enjoy listening to history voluntarily, Alex gets to hear about history involuntarily around the house all the time. So <laughs> the fact that he's volunteering for this episode, kudos to him. You know, that speaks to the wonderful man that he is. <laughs> hey, captive audience, what can I say? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and we are recording this on technically Valentine's Day weekend. Yep. You know, this is what couples do. This is what couples do. Indeed. So, as noted in past episodes of the series, the post of Secretary of the Navy was rather problematic for Democratic-Republican presidents to fill because most of the naval experience of the nation was centered in New England, which was predominantly Federalist. So, Mm -hmm. Jefferson, Madison, they wouldn't want to pick a Federalist for this post. Now, the Smiths of Maryland in the mid-Atlantic region had served previously, but Madison cast his net further south for filling this post. And it makes sense, you know, at that time, presidential cabinets, presidential administrations were seen, you wanted to have a geographic balance. And so he still had Robert Smith from Maryland in the cabinet. So this opened up an opportunity maybe to bring in somebody from further south. And since out of all the southern states, South Carolina had the best harbor by far in Charleston, Mm -hmm. it makes sense that you would choose someone from that state because it's kind of atypical of the southern states at that time that it did have a strong maritime tradition. But this fact doesn't really play out with Hamilton because Hamilton wasn't really a merchant. He had no experience in naval affairs or in merchant shipping. He was a planner. Mm -hmm. And it also doesn't really make sense that Hamilton, there really wasn't a personal connection that I was able to find between Hamilton and Madison prior to his being asked to join the cabinet. And to me, it's, it's weird because Charles Pinckney, and just as you recognized his name, Alex, he was more of the well-known figure in a national landscape and on the national scene And he was actually wrapping up his tenure as governor. So one question that I had, and I just wasn't able to find any real explanation for it, is that, you know, why didn't he ask Charles Pinckney? Mm -hmm. I wasn't able to find a a definite explanation for that. I do have a, a theory that we'll talk about in a minute. Okay. But in terms of Hamilton, it just seems kind of odd that Madison would choose this person who had been out of public office for a number of years at this point. But as Madison biographer Ralph Ketchum described him, Hamilton, quote, was, it seems, simply an unobjectable Southerner. Hmm. So, again, going back to Charles Pinckney, because Pinckney had actually been a supporter of the Embargo Act, which was one of the major things at the end of the Jefferson administration. It was highly unpopular, and the fact that he was one of the leaders who was still in support of it in spite of the public outcry against it, you would think that he would have been more of the person that Madison would have thought of to bring into the cabinet. But it could have been that 
Madison knew that Pinckney, like Jefferson, was ready to retire. Mm-hmm. Although, brief tangent here, he didn't really. He went on to have more public service after this, but it could have been that just at that point he was saying he wants to retire. But, you know, for whatever reason, this office, this offer to become the Navy secretary went to this runner-up, Paul Hamilton. <laughs> Good old runner-up Hamilton. All right. <laughs> runner-up Hamilton. So when you're, when you're looking for somebody, a warm body from South Carolina, I guess Paul Hamilton will do. Now, again, one of the things that makes it difficult to really explain why Hamilton is that in the primary resources, I haven't been able to find anything that speaks to why Madison chose pretty much anybody in his cabinet. You know, with Robert Smith, it was understandable. His brother was prominent in the Senate. They were prominent figures in Washington society. So you would want him in. Albert Gallatin had been Secretary of the Treasury, again, one of those major figures. But when you get to people like Hamilton and William Eustace, the Secretary of War, I've heard of him too. Yeah, and he has his own episode of this special series, so mm-hmm. definitely encourage folks to check that out. But, you know, we just don't really know why he was chosen, except that he was just a guy from South Carolina who had been a politician. He chose him because he wanted you to make a special episode all about him. Uh, Madison <laughs> did, so he wanted you to make the special episode. That's exactly why he chose him. Madison knew that hundreds of years down the road, there was going to be the presidency's podcast. And he's Mm -hmm. like, well, let's go ahead and give Hamilton his due. He'll, he needs an episode. Uh, Well, we'll see how it plays out because you know, it could get kind of crazy. We will definitely see because, and that's the thing as historian Robert Rutland sums up quote, the truth was that Madison opted for harmony and the appearance of a broadly based national cabinet rather than a collection of the best minds in the Republican Party. You can probably hear that foreshadowing there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But whatever the case, on May 15, 1809, Paul Hamilton assumed office as the third U.S. Secretary of the Navy. Now, as described by naval historian Charles Oscar Paulin, quote, the limited and provincial experiences of Hamilton made his outlook upon naval affairs somewhat narrow. Hmm. Many of his standards, which had been established by a life of great simplicity and integrity, had, however, a wholesome influence upon the Navy. The habits of thought, the customs, and the economies which obtained upon a South Carolina plantation were far from being amiss when applied to the administration of naval affairs. As Secretary of the Navy, Hamilton naturally insisted upon economy and naval expenditures, a scrupulous regard for the letter of the law, a conscientious attention to duty on the part of the higher naval officers, and correct habits for the midshipmen. So we'll have to see how this plays out because we should Mm -hmm. note that at the time that he came into office, the nation was at peace. You know? Yeah. Even though the U.S. was still trying to figure things out and had some foreign relation issues with Britain and France. Technically, peace was still on. And so the Navy, there really wasn't that much to do. And speaking of that economy, you know, Paul Hamilton seemed to be a dream come true to his cabinet colleague, Secretary of the Treasury Gallatin, 
who, in his quest to cut public expenditures, had often found himself at odds with Hamilton's predecessor, Robert Smith, who had consistently pushed for expanding the naval fleet and subsequently the naval budget. You know, they had gone toe-to-toe plenty of times. Gallatin had tried to get President Jefferson to fire Smith. But in Hamilton, he has a guy who, okay, he's wanting to keep expenditures small. He's right. not wanting to build up the Navy. This is this is a good guy. I can I can handle him. He's cheap. He's cheap. He's cheap. Let's let's keep the cheap guy. But Hamilton, however, was someone who, as described by Paul, unquote, looked at the naval affairs through Jefferson's spectacles. Now, this didn't mean that Hamilton was afraid to use his limited office to the benefit of his supporters. So even though he's willing to pinch pennies on some certain things, as noted by historian Christopher McKee, when Hamilton assumed office in 1809, the number of midshipmen recruited from South Carolina doubled from its standard figures prior to a clear show of Mm -hmm. preference for folks back home. Of course. Of course. I'm going to say that a lot today. (laughs) Of course. Exactly. (laughs) And that's the thing, like even in the early Republic, some of these things, these, this nepotism, this using office to fill it with office seekers who are beneficial to you as the office holder. This is something that's happening even in the early Republic, even though we think of it more, you know, the, the spoil system, the Gilded Age. This is still happening even in the Madison presidency. Mm -hmm. Indeed, it would be found later that Hamilton, quote, had appointed many more midshipmen than were authorized by law. So not only was he appointing folks from back home, he was also appointing them to posts that technically hadn't been approved by Congress. Uh Uh-huh. He also, at least at one point, appointed a personal contact, quote, to a key clerkship for which he, the office holder, had neither the accounting skills nor the handwriting. So this is definitely the spoil Mm. system at work in the Navy Department. Yes, it is. It is. A little over five months into office, Hamilton had to return to South Carolina to tend to personal affairs and bring his family back with him to Washington. Hamilton admitted to his clerk, that, quote, in leaving only for a short time, as I contemplate my office, I confess that I am not entirely easy, for certainly there are duties and trust which can, consistently with law, be under the performance and guidance only of the head of the departments. And this gets back to something that we've seen in previous secretaries of the Navy, that this was an office, this was a department at the time that had such a small staff that the Secretary of the Navy had to carry a big workload. The Secretary of the Navy was responsible for pretty much any paperwork that was coming in. He had to approve things. He had to work through reports. He had to do all of these things. And Hamilton was naturally concerned, well, I'm leaving for a little bit. Are things going to actually be able to keep on rolling without me here. Paulin notes that Hamilton only had four clerks on hand to help him administer the business of the U.S. Navy. And considering that one of those clerks didn't really have the skill set to be able to perform his role, it really meant three clerks and the other guy. Oh, goodness. 
Yeah. Despite this, nearly a year into his tenure in office, Captain William Bainbridge wrote of Hamilton to Captain David Porter that, quote, You may rest assured of one fact, that we have an excellent secretary and that he is a most zealous friend to the Navy. Porter, upon meeting Hamilton, wrote that, quote, I'm extremely pleased with the Secretary of the Navy. He is a plain gentleman and a man of great penetration and inquiry. So it's interesting that you you've got these these different viewpoints. You know, we're seeing kind of behind the scenes that there was some disorganization, some favoritism, some political underhandedness at play. But to the naval officers of the time, they're like, this really is a good guy. You know, I, I think we can trust him as Secretary of the Navy. He bamboozled them. He bamboozled them. And it didn't hurt that during his tenure in the cabinet, Paul and Mary Hamilton were fixtures in the Washington social scene. And Mary Hamilton would at times host parties at their residence in Washington. So they were working that social life to his political benefit. Mm. So they were basically getting everybody drunk, and that's why they love them. Exactly. Exactly. You You know, the party scene could help to grease some wheels and get some people on your side. So they were definitely playing that angle, which, and and you see Mm -hmm. in people like, you know, Dolly Madison, of course, was the first lady at the time. Previously, she had been in a similar role, but really serving when her husband was secretary of state. They knew the political wheelings and dealings that could be done in the social sphere Hamilton and his wife were trying along those same lines. We'll have to wait and see how it turns out. Now, we've had we've been talking some negative things about Hamilton, but we should note that as Navy Secretary, Hamilton pushed for the creation of naval hospitals. Mm, okay. Paula notes that, quote, in 1810, sick and disabled seamen were relieved at 24 of the chief seaports of the Atlantic and Gulf Coast. Only at Norfolk and Boston had marine hospitals been erected. In New York, Philadelphia, Savannah, and New Orleans, provision was made for seamen at the city hospitals. At several ports, they were boarded at private houses at the expense of the government. Now, this was a very informal system. It was very slipshod. You know, mm-hmm. there wasn't really these this firm establishment of naval hospitals at these major seaports. And so Secretary Hamilton in February 1810 pushed for reform. Congress passed a bill on February 26, 1811 to establish a naval hospital system, though it would take over 20 years before the system would be fully implemented. It was through Hamilton's lobbying of Congress that the process was begun. Okay. So we actually have a something on the positive side for him. Okay. Yeah, we'll take it. Absolutely. And so we should also note, again, another positive point. Historian Christopher McKee notes that, quote, no issue was closer to his, i.e. Hamilton's heart, than strengthening and expanding the program for the education of newly appointed midshipmen begun by Robert Smith. Mm-hmm. Throughout his tenure, Hamilton stringently enforced the highest standards of personal and professional conduct by the Navy's officers. And so again, this gets to that quote from earlier, you know, that this idea of professionalism, he wanted to really impart that in the Navy. And so, 
you know, that's another thing that he's working to progress the culture of the Navy. Well, I wouldn't expect anything less than from someone uh, of that caliber in South Carolina. So there you go. It's all about the culture. The culture. It's all about the culture. Now, a concerted effort was made in the spring of 1810 to severely reduce the size of the Navy, with Representative John Randolph of Roanoke, Democratic-Republican from Virginia, and somebody who listeners of the podcast have heard me talk about on a number of occasions. So... John Randolph of Roanoke at one point put forward a bill, quote, to reduce the number of vessels in the Navy to three frigates and three small craft, to discharge all the officers and seamen except such number as was necessary to man these six vessels, (laughs) to discontinue the Portsmouth, Philadelphia, and Washington Navy Yards, and to decrease the Marine Corps to two companies. Wow. So. The Navy at that point was definitely far from what we think of as the Navy nowadays. But here Randolph is saying, you know, we need to shrink it even more. Though the debate was fierce, ultimately this was too much, even for the Democratic-Republican majority Congress. And, And that's the thing, like Jefferson in his tenure had pushed for reducing the Navy when at all possible, when of course they weren't starting you know, wars weren't on with Tripoli and we weren't sending squadrons over. But this is even more extreme than I think Jefferson would have proposed. Yeah. Yeah. So I should note here a key naval event that occurred during Hamilton's tenure. You know, as they're debating in Congress about reducing the size of the Navy, you know, we, we're still, we've still got those tensions with Britain and France. And some of this is starting to play out on the high seas because, and especially with Britain, that was one of the major points of contention was this practice of impressment, which was mm-hmm. basically British Navy vessels would board American ships and would take folks. They would say, oh, well, this person is a deserter from the British Navy. We're going to take them and impress them back in service. Now, sometimes this was legitimate. There were deserters from the British Navy due to the fact that they would get paid more in the American Navy or in the American uh, Merchant Marine. Also, it wasn't quite as the conditions on the vessels were quite better on American ships than they were on British ships. You know, it could be rather brutal and some captains, some British captains were rather heavy-handed in their enforcement of rules on board ship. And so it was seen as a better prospect. So there were Mm -hmm. some legitimate cases of this. The problem, however, was that it wasn't all the cases. There were some cases that it was just, and, and this was a time where there wasn't a distinctive British accent versus an American accent. Mm-hmm. And this was a time before, you know, there were, they did have some passports, but that was typically f- more for diplomats. It wasn't something that was issued in general to just anybody. And so it was hard for these folks to prove, hey, I'm an American. I'm not British. Why are you impressing me? Mm-hmm. But then also this idea of sovereignty. You know, the British Navy is saying we can just board whatever American vessel we want without approval of the U.S. government. And so all of this was creating 
big issues between yeah. Britain and the U.S. They were basically pilfering our, our Navy. Exactly. Pilfering our Navy, pilfering our merchant marine, because for the most part, it wasn't naval vessels that they were boarding, although we did see the Chesapeake Leopard affair in the Jefferson presidency mm -hmm. where they did board a U.S. Navy vessel. But by and large, these were merchant ships. But still, it was you're taking our sailors and you're impressing them and you're violating our sovereignty. And by this point in 1811, British ships were regularly harassing American ships off the coast of the eastern seaboard. And Commodore John Rogers, while visiting family in Annapolis, Maryland in early May 1811, learned that the HMS Guerriere had attacked numerous ships and impressed multiple American sailors off the coast of New York. Thus, he gave word for his ship, the USS President, to be readied, and they set off in search of the Guerriere. On the afternoon of May 16th, they spotted a ship in the distance that they thought might be the British frigate and gave pursuit. It was around 8.15 p.m. when they got close enough for Rogers to call out to the ship with a trumpet to identify himself. And so this is a standard practice, you know, this huge trumpet and, you know, what ship is this? But as was usual, neither ship really wanted to identify who they were to the other ship without knowing who the other ship was. And so this just ended up in this back and forth. What was unusual about this exchange, because while Rogers was doing this and they had this back and forth, a shot rang out. Ooh. And it was from one side or the other. The sources that I saw wasn't really clear on whether it was from the American ship or the British, but a shot rang out. And so everybody immediately goes into, oh, they're shooting at us. We need to fire back. Right. And so it was described as follows, quote, both vessels opened a furious barrage of cannon and musket fire. It was during this exchange of fire that Rogers quickly recognized his error. This wasn't a larger frigate like the Guerriere. Rather, it was a 20-gun corvette named the Little Belt, which was severely outmatched by the president and, after only 15 minutes of fire, quote, had suffered badly with her hull pierced in several places between wind and water, her sails and rigging cut to pieces, and her starboard pump destroyed. Nine of her men were killed and 23 wounded, several of them mortally. Goodness gracious. Yeah, I mean, this was just, this was basically like, you know, a, a, a battleship going up against, you know, like a fishing vessel. This was, they were completely outmatched. And so this ship was just decimated. Realizing his error, Rogers offered assistance. But as you can imagine, the British captain felt that the president and its crew had done more than enough already. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. And so the little belt limps back to the British port of Halifax. It was actually nearly lost to a large gale storm along the way, but they did make it back safe. You know, wow. They they did have this massive loss of life, this massive these massive casualties, but they did manage to get back to port. When Commodore Rogers requested, quote, a board of inquiry to examine his conduct in the engagement, which was something that was pretty standard practice at the time. Like anytime you you ended up in an in engagement like this, they wanted to evaluate, you know. What happened? Did the commander do what was right? Right. But when he requested this court of inquiry, and, and he admitted, he was like, you know, 
I'm, I'm taking, I'm willing to take the blame. We should have realized that that was not a frigate. When he asked for the court of inquiry, Hamilton responded on May 28th with orders for Rogers to go back out to sea and quote, prepare for a trial much more serious than that to which you have been invited. Mm-hmm. For I'm certain that the chastisement which you have very properly inflicted will cause you to be marked for British vengeance. Ooh. So he's saying, you know what? We think it was a good thing. The British are not naturally. They're going to be upset. We don't really care. Just go back out, do your thing, keep on. And if you want to take out a few other British ships, by all means, go ahead. The gauntlet has been thrown. The gauntlet has been thrown. And the thing was, you know, this was something, you know, Ian Toll, historian Ian Toll notes, quote, most Americans seem to share Secretary Hamilton's view that the rough handling of the Little Belt was a just comeuppance. And this was after years of British impressment of American sailors. The public, Secretary Hamilton, the administration, they're like, you know what? They earned this one. Mm-hmm. But as you can imagine, the Little Belt Fair made a bad situation even worse in terms of Anglo-American relations. Of course. Meanwhile. Hamilton's role became increasingly larger as war loomed. You know, this is a time that it's being seen that we're probably going to go to war. There's still the possibility that it could be with France, but increasingly it's looking like, yeah, it's probably going to be with Britain. And oh, by the way, we're going to have to deal with the British Navy. And so that means we've got to figure out what to do with our Navy. Mm-hmm. So by early 1812, Hamilton was working with President Madison and his cabinet colleagues to plan what to do about the Navy in the case of war. The administration decided, quote, that the entire American fleet should be kept safe in port for the duration of the conflict. And so just a note here, you know, they're thinking with this, this was the British Navy. Right. And the British Navy at this time, by far the largest naval fleet they were worlds beyond anything that any other nation could offer, but especially the United States. You know, this was after the Jeffersonian idea of we just need gunboats for defense. We don't really need these frigates. We don't need these large vessels, or at least not many of them. We just need these little gunboats, which will help to protect our coastline. Mm-hmm. And you think about this going up against the British Navy the British Royal Navy. And the administration was like, well, you know, we really do only have these few vessels. Maybe we should just keep them at port and that way they'll be safe. You know, we won't have any ships that are are taken down or captured by the British. We'll just go ahead and give up command of the seas to the British. Okay. But as you can imagine, American naval captains objected to this. Right. Because they're like, hey, we're about to go to war. We don't want to just be sitting in port. We can actually be out doing some good. Right. And so Captains William Bainbridge and Charles Stewart lodged an official protest with Hamilton in February 1812, urging that the frigates be sent to sea. After talking with Hamilton and making their case to him, they asked for a meeting with Madison. And they wanted to explain to him 
why they thought the frigates should go out to sea. Mm -hmm. Apparently, their arguments were persuasive, for Madison changed his mind and told them, quote, It is victories we want. If you give us victories and lose your ships afterwards, they can be replaced by others. And so Madison's changing his thoughts. He's like, you know what? Maybe it is worth it to go ahead and send them out. Even if we lose some ships, guess what? We've got all these Navy yards. John Randolph of Roanoke's plan to shut them down didn't go through. We can still build more ships. We can get more ships. But they may be able to do some good actually attacking the British Navy. Right. Thus, Hamilton went back to the drawing board to determine exactly how the frigates should be deployed. And at this point, there are numerous options. So they could be sent out to patrol close to the American coast, or they could be sent further out sea, further abroad. They could be deployed in squadrons, or it could be just individual vessels, or maybe they're paired up. There are these numerous options. They could be used for the defense of American merchant ships, or they could be used to attack British commerce on the high seas. So Hamilton was having to think through what is this deployment going to look like? Knowing his limitations in terms of his knowledge of naval strategy, in late May, he asked Captain Stephen Decatur and John Rogers to advise him on a strategy. These two captains recommended sending ships abroad to attack British commerce, but they differed on whether they should be organized as a squadron or sent out on missions either solo or in pairs. Having this advice before him, because, you know, they realize war's coming, they need to mm -hmm. get their recommendations into Hamilton ASAP. So they did that. And so he had this. As noted by Toll, quote, Hamilton hesitated. Rogers and Decatur's letters sat on his desk for two weeks. Ooh. And this is late May. War was declared a couple of weeks later. Wow. So this is... This is not the time to just be twiddling your thumbs and, oh, well, maybe, uh, I don't really know. I'll decide that tomorrow. Time is of the essence. No dawdling. No dawdling. No dawdling. We need to go now. We need to have plans in place. We're about to declare war. Having been the head of the Navy during a time of peace thus far in his tenure, it was clear that Hamilton was struggling for preparing himself to lead a wartime Navy. And unfortunately for Hamilton, he would not remain the administrator of a peacetime Navy because, as I said, on June 18, 1812, the U.S. declared war on Great Britain. Building up the American Navy would be key to victory. But Hamilton, who had been all on board for shrinking the naval force, would be deemed inadequate by numerous leaders when asked to do the reverse. Mm -hmm. As described by McKee, quote, Paul Hamilton was no administrator. Hamilton's lack of administrative skills was slowly, subtly corroding the entire operation. Record keeping became more and more careless. Sympathy for friends or acquaintances struggling to establish businesses or keep them afloat led Hamilton into some ill-advised and possibly illegal contracts Oof. that provided the Navy with goods of inferior quality or excessive cost. Goodness. Yeah. Three days after the declaration of war, 
Secretary of the Treasury Gallatin complained to the president that, quote, Hamilton still had not sent the needed cruising orders to the force that had been gathered at New York Harbor under the command of Commodore John Rogers. As Gallatin wrote, the orders, quote, ought to have been sent yesterday, and at all events, not one day longer ought to be lost. I'm going to pause here for a second. Because this is Gallatin, the guy who wanted to cut costs and slash the Navy. He's even realizing, you know what? We need to build up our forces. We need to send them out. If we are going to have any chance of beating the British, we need our naval vessels at war, out of the harbor. We need them at sea. And this guy is delaying it. Mm. Even Gallatin realizes the importance of this. The orders were finally sent after a cabinet meeting on June 22nd, but the express rider carrying them found that Rogers and his squadron had already sailed without orders. This was technically insubordination, but again from Toll, quote, Rogers grasped what Hamilton may have only dimly understood, that every hour lost to dithering gave the enemy another hour to reach to the American declaration of war. Mm-hmm. So he realized that I can't even, I can't wait for orders to come. We need to be out there now. Secretary of State James Monroe and former President Jefferson recommended to President Madison that summer that Hamilton be replaced at the Navy Department. Meanwhile, Representative Nathaniel Macon, Democratic Republican from North Carolina, from our home state, mm-hmm. wrote that Hamilton was, quote, about as fit for his place as the Indian prophet would be for emperor of Europe. Ooh, wow. Yeah. Sting. Paulin does question whether Hamilton truly, quote, did not measure up to the high stature of a successful war secretary, or if he was used as a scapegoat by Madison and his supporters for the strategic blunders that abounded in the first few months of the war. Now, I do have to say, this is... One of those instances, I'm not really sure that we can say that he was a scapegoat. I mean, we're seeing he's not really good at administration. He's he's letting things slip. He's waiting and dithering mm-hmm. on making key decisions and sending out important orders. This isn't just a case of a scapegoat. This is, and we'll talk more about this at the end, but mm-hmm. it's not looking good. Not at all. We also have to note here that accusations were lodged against Hamilton that he had, quote, begun drinking so heavily that he became incapable of directing effectively. Oh. Well, he was sauced. He was sauced. There was no wonder that he wasn't sending out orders. You know, (laughs) and we've got a couple of notes about this, so... While McKean notes that there is evidence that points towards that conclusion that he was drinking heavily, McKee also points out, quote, the fact that Hamilton's handwriting, of which there are numerous examples, remained beautifully small, clear, and precise right through to the end of his term of office, a phenomenon one would scarcely expect in a man supposedly too intoxicated to perform his duties in the latter part of the day. Now, I've got a call a little question to this because there were at least we know three other clerks and that other guy who were in the office who 
could have written these letters out for him. So right. it may not have been Hamilton writing these letters. Probably wasn't. Yeah. And we do have a bit of a another point here because McKee points out that only one officer, David Porter, had accused Hamilton of drinking on the job. None of the other naval officers who would have been in regular contact with Hamilton noted anything along these lines. But again, I've got to push back on that one because would that be insubordination? Did you really want, as a naval officer, did you want to say, oh, well, you know, the Secretary of the Navy, he's he's a big old drunkard. Mm-hmm. You know, that, would that be professional? And then also, you know, we noted that he was, he did have the high regard. The naval officers did hold him in high regard to this point. So that could have been at play. But again, we can get more into that towards the end. But just want to note, okay. this is this is something that's going on. Okay. I did find another account from a biography of James Monroe by Harry Ammon that described, quote, Hamilton's constant inebriation. He was regularly <laughs> reported drunk by noon, creating a scandal. And Ammon says that Madison, quote, chided him for appearing in a drunken condition at a public ceremony on board the Constitution. We also have accounts from the French minister to the U.S. at the time. He apparently wrote back to his government about it and said that, quote, Mr. Madison and his friends tried by every means to cure him, i.e. Hamilton, but it was useless. And so the last thing I'm going to say about this before we move on to some other stuff, you know, this was a time where drinking was quite prevalent. Heavy drinking was quite prevalent. This was seen as a norm, but when you get to the point of public intoxication, when you get to the point of it's moving into that alcoholism, that's seen as a personal slight, that's seen as, you know, you don't have a good character if you're an alcoholic, if you're publicly inebriated all the time. Mm -hmm. This is a stain on your honor. So just wanted to note that. Yeah. And again, we can talk more about this towards the end and oh, we uh, will. Determine, determine how we feel about this. Okay. In addition to his struggles in his public office, Hamilton at the time was facing major challenges in his personal affairs. McKee, in his description of Hamilton's tenure of office, notes, quote, the deterioration of his, i.e. Hamilton's, financial affairs in South Carolina, where his creditors were forcing the sale of his slaves by the tens and twenties to recover debts he could not otherwise meet. So in addition to people saying this guy is not, you know, he's running the Navy Department into the ground, he's also running his personal finances into the ground. And he's a drunk. And he's a drunk. And so you can imagine that all this is coalescing together. Mm Mm-hmm. Just as the poor state of his personal finances were coming to a head, a Congressional Committee of Investigation was busily gathering evidence of the, quote, careless financial administration of the Navy office. Oh boy. Toll notes that Hamilton's lack of experience in dealing with maritime affairs was becoming a major issue the longer the war went on. Hamilton, quote, had no prior experience in outfitting ships are overseeing the complex accounts of a large maritime organization. Bookkeeping standards declined, chaos reigned in the Navy office, 
anti-navalist Republicans triumphantly pointed out that the administration could not say how vast sums had been spent. Goodness gracious. Yeah, not not going well at the Navy office. Not at all. Not at all. I think he's probably using that money for his bar tab. <laughs> Possibly, but who could keep tabs of it because apparently no records keeping. Yeah, we're not keeping records, so who knows where where those few dollars went. Did it go to actually outfitting ship or did it go to outfitting Paul Hamilton's bar? Who knows? Right. Right. Despite the controversy swirling around Hamilton, those did not have an impact on the performance of the U.S. Navy as starting in August through the end of October, four British ships were captured in naval engagements, including some rather prominent ships. And a couple of those that I wanted to mention is the aforementioned the HMS Guerriere, mm-hmm. as well as the HMS Macedonian. Okay. Indeed, the capture of the former ship by the USS Constitution resulted in Congress awarding a gold medal to the Constitution's captain, Isaac Hull, and silver medals to the lieutenants and midshipmen. So the Navy itself is doing well. In spite of (laughs) the failures of of Hamilton. And we should also note here that these victories may have been more in spite of Hamilton rather than because of any leadership he was providing, because just as Rogers had done right after the declaration of war, when he took his squadron out without orders, Hull had taken action without orders to launch the constitution from Boston, a decision which ultimately resulted in this major early naval victory. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the commanders on the sea are not even waiting for orders from the secretary. They're just saying, you know what? We're just going and fighting. We're not going to listen to this guy. We don't, we don't need these orders. And again, this was technically insubordination. They're supposed to wait for orders. They're not supposed to move without orders from the Navy office, but they are just going ahead and you know what? We got this. Wow. Though the Navy was definitely performing better than the army in the early days of the war, the pressure was building against Hamilton. Thus, on December 28th, President Madison met with Hamilton to discuss, quote, complaints about Hamilton's management of the Navy Department. The next day, at Madison's request, they met again. The president informed Hamilton that he had gotten word from Congress that they would not vote on needed appropriations for the Navy unless Hamilton was removed from office. Sting. Yeah. Yeah, they are saying we are not giving you one more cent until that guy is gone. That drunk. <laughs> that <laughs> drunk. We don't care. You can. I'm, and I'm sure this is not helping his public intoxication either. I'm sure. I have no doubt. <laughs> no. Made it worse. You can imagine that he, he's drinking even more at this point. Right. You know, but Congress is saying, we don't care. You can kick him into a bar. You can kick him to the curb. Just get him out of the Navy department. Get rid of him. Get rid of him. Hamilton defended his conduct, of course, but he could ultimately see This was a lost cause. There was no coming back from this. Hmm. Thus, on December 30th, he sent a letter to President Madison, which read as follows, quote, 
Having devoted unremittingly more than 30 years of my life to public service in various situations, in all of which I feel a consciousness of having done my duty according to my best judgment and understanding, and being now about to withdraw from the office of the Secretary of the Navy, with which you honored me, permit me to ask you whether, in your opinion, there has been anything in the course of my conduct in that station reprehensible. Your goodness of heart, sir, will induce you, as I trust, readily to excuse this intrusion when you reflect that if this inquiry is answered as my conscience leads me to expect it will be, you will put me in possession of what may be a valuable legacy to my children. So basically, he's saying, and he he realizes, you know, not only is he being asked to resign, being kicked to the curb, it is not on good terms. Everybody is talking about how awful he is and how shameful he is. This is a big stain on his personal honor. And so in this resignation letter, he's asking Madison, can you just please say if you thought that there was something in my conduct that was wrong or if you thought that I did a good job? He's asking for this as some kind of proof something to help to replenish his honor. That's pitiful. It's pitiful. And especially, I mean, you know, that he's bringing in, think of the children, please think of my children. This Mm. is, this is bad. This is really bad. Madison replied the next day as follows, quote, on an occasion, which is to terminate the relation in which it placed us. I cannot satisfy my own feelings or the tribute due to your patriotic merits and private virtues without bearing testimony to the faithful zeal, the uniform exertions, and unimpeachable integrity with which you have discharged that important trust, and without expressing the value I have always placed on that personal intercourse, the pleasure of which I am now to lose. With these recollections and impressions, I tender you assurances of my affection, esteem, and of my sincerest wishes for your welfare and happiness. Well, that was nice. So you got it. Now get out. <laughs> exactly. Now right. you got it. And I will say, and again, grains of salt at the ready because I didn't see any confirmation of this, but I am wondering if this was the condition for him to just go without causing much of a fuss, to go quietly. Yeah. You know what? I will write this letter for you. I will say, you know, you go ahead and ask me. I'll have a letter ready, send you the next day saying, I hold you in high regard. You know, I'm going to miss you, whatever, mm-hmm. to try and help his tarnished reputation. You know, that was the price of going quietly. Right. Again, don't have any confirmation of that, but I could definitely see that happening here. Right. And with that, Paul Hamilton ended his tenure as Secretary of the Navy on New Year's Day, January 1st, 1813. There's not much to note of Hamilton's career after leaving the cabinet, but I did find a bit of detail about Hamilton's son, Archibald. Okay. Archibald was appointed a midshipman in the Navy in May 1809, coincidentally, soon after his father's assuming office as Secretary of the Navy. So he gets Mm. a a naval appointment right after his father takes office. Again, going back to that spoil system. 
He's yeah. using it to personally benefit his own son. But I digress. Archibald was initially assigned to the USS President before being transferred to the USS John Adams in January 1811, then to the USS United States, where he served under Commodore Stephen Decatur. Archibald earned high commendation for gallantry in action from Decatur for his role in capturing the HMS Macedonian in October 1812. So that was one of those big ships, one of those big early naval victories. Hamilton's son was involved in that. Archibald was appointed as acting lieutenant and served during the War of 1812. Assigned to the USS President, as that ship attempted to break the British blockade on January 15, 1815, the next day, British ships caught up with the President and, in the battle that ensued, Archibald Hamilton was killed in his early 20s. Mm. Goodness. Little did anyone know at the time of the Treaty of Ghent and that that treaty had already been signed. News of it was on its way. But if that news had been received earlier, that could have potentially prevented Archibald's death. But he was one of the final folks at the end of the war who laid down his life in service. Wow. I bet you old Paul Hamilton wished he hadn't have used that spoil system. You know, and and you have to wonder, and again, have no account of this in, you know, primary resources, but you do have to imagine that he felt a certain sense of guilt that yeah, he had been the one to get his son into the Navy. And yeah, you know, what responsibility did he have for his death? Now, as for Paul Hamilton, we have to assume that he went back to overseeing his plantation operations and trying to work to satisfy his debt for the next few years of his life. Hamilton passed away at Rhodes Plantation near Beaufort, South Carolina on June 30th, 1816, at the age of 53, and was buried there. Oh my, 53? 53, yeah. So this is definitely one of those instances and and we do have some of these you know we've seen like John Breckenridge we saw um William Bradford we've seen some other cabinet members that have passed away pretty early on but this is still this is young still relatively young yeah. even for that time this estate eventually became part of the Clarendon plantation which is still in existence to this day and from the latest source i could find still cultivates corn milo wheat and pine trees on the estate. His wife Mary lived for another 11 years, passing away in September 1827 on Odesto Island at the age of either 63 or 64. Okay. Over the years, Hamilton has been remembered in a couple of ways. Soon after his death, the town of Hamilton, Georgia was incorporated and named after him. With a population of 1,680 as of the 2020 census, it is the county seat of Harris County in west-central Georgia on the border with Alabama. Five naval ships have also been named after him. The first USS Paul Hamilton was a Clemson-class destroyer built for World War I, but wasn't put into action until after the war. It was commissioned in 1920 and served with the Pacific Battle Fleet until it was decommissioned 10 years later. The second was a Fletcher-class destroyer built for the next World War. That one was commissioned in time for service in that war, as it was commissioned in 1943. It protected replenishment aircraft and fueling groups during the landing at Saipan in mid-1944. It would serve in similar roles in the Battle of the Philippine Sea, then in the Admiralty Islands, the Palau Islands, 
and back in the Philippines. In 1945, the USS Paul Hamilton participated in the assault on Iwo Jima before serving as fire support for the Battle of Okinawa. In mid-1945, it was sent back to San Diego for overhaul. Before it was able to get back into battle, the war ended, and thus the USS Paul Hamilton was decommissioned in September 1945. It was finally sold for scrap in 1970. The third USS Paul Hamilton is an Arleigh Burke-class destroyer that was commissioned in May 1995, and it is still in service to this day. Hmm. And as of this recording, that's 2023. Mm -hmm. Another ship, the USS Paul Hamilton, was launched as the merchant ship Diana in 1809 and was purchased by the Navy in October 1812 for service on the Great Lakes. It was renamed USS Hamilton in November, but served for less than a year as it was lost in a sudden squall off the coast of present-day Hamilton, Ontario. The last ship to mention is the SS Paul Hamilton, which was a Liberty ship launched in October 1942. Now, Liberty ships served as cargo ships. On its fifth voyage in April 1944, the SS Paul Hamilton was hit off the coast of Algiers by an aerial torpedo, which detonated its cargo of explosives and bombs. The ship sank within 30 minutes, and all 580 crew members aboard were lost. I'm surprised there were any ships named after this guy, but then again, there's not a lot of uh, historical record about him, so maybe that was Madison's final gift to him. Exactly. We'll scrub the historical record of your ineptitude and uh, for the sake of your children, and there you go. But as we do on presidencies, we leave no stone unturned, and we were able to find what Hamilton and, to your point, likely Madison, did not want much written about or talked about mm-hmm. with Paul Hamilton's tenure as Secretary of the Navy. But we are going to discuss that career and that legacy now. Okay. And we're going to start with our whole picture round. So this round looks at the overall career and character of the cabinet member, and we can award up to 10 points maximum each. So Alex, what are your first thoughts in terms of Paul Hamilton's overall career? I mean, so his career in the cabinet only or leading up to? No. So this one is everything. This is from beginning to end. Okay. From beginning to end. Mm -hmm. This is a tough one. I guess just with everything considered, I'm going to be generous like Madison was. I'm going to give him seven points. And why so? Well, just taking into account, you know, he was the governor of South Carolina, comptroller, just all the things that led up you know, to his tenure as uh, in the, in the Navy. So um, seven, seven points, seven points. Yeah. And and that is something important to consider. You know, this was, you know, whenever we look at his overall career, he had a meteoric rise, you know, he, mm-hmm. he started out, you know, he, he definitely worked himself up. You know, he started in the state leg or well, actually he started in these local offices and then went to the state legislature went to the state Senate, ended up the comptroller, ended up governor, mm-hmm. and then became a cabinet member. Even though, of course, we see this regularly in our series, this is still, this is something that's 
that not every politician at that point, this is not a level that they get to. And so the fact that Mm -hmm. he was able to do that is something that we, we do need to keep in mind. Right now in that. And part of the problem here is for me, at least is what did he do? You know? Yeah. He was a part of the convention that ratified the constitution. Yeah. He did become secretary of the, the Navy. And we'll talk more about his cabinet tenure mm-hmm. in the next round and kind of evaluate that, you know, he did have some accomplishments there, but what, what legacy did he really leave? I think his cabinet tenure, there are a couple of points of, of positive legacy there. Mm-hmm. I just, I can't, I can't go too high. I'm going to have to say, I'm going to go a bit lower. So I, I think I'm going to say a four here. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now you're making me second left my, my, my rank. Well, and, and that's completely fine. Like if you want to keep him as seven, but, and for me, it's also like thinking through some of the other cabinet members that we've seen or, or are going mm-hmm. to see. We've, we've got these folks who have these monumental achievements that really make their mark on U.S. history. And Paul Hamilton, while as a statesman, he is successful. He is able to work the politics to be able to get to these prominent offices. And we see in his cabinet tenure, some of how he probably did that. It seems mm-hmm. like, you know, it, that kind of helps to fill in some of the gaps in his other offices. He was probably doing some of the same stuff, like appointing people, you know, friends, supporters to certain key positions. He was probably hobnobbing. He was probably working the political wheels. Mm-hmm. So he was successful in that, but in terms of his legacy, what did he really do? And so I, I, for me, a four seems like a good place for him. You know, he's definitely not a complete abysmal failure, but he's also, you know, he's not necessarily, he's not a a Henry Clay. He's not a Daniel Webster. He's not one of those figures. Exactly. So can I change my score? You can. All right. I think I'm going to go. In the middle of the road, five, five points. Five? Yeah. And I, I think I think Paul Hamilton would be glad for that. So with that, that gets him nine points in this round. Mm-hmm. Okay. So next we're going to go to the go-getter round. And so this round, this is where we look at his impact as a cabinet member during his time in the cabinet. Mm. And again, just like the last round, we can award up to 10 points each. Okay. <laughs> he's not going to get too many points in this one. I don't think <laughs> I, I don't think he's going to get too many points, but you know, yeah. What are your initial thoughts? And then I'll, I'll talk through some of my thoughts in terms of what I want to give him in terms of the score. Yeah, well, and, and just what you think of his tenure as in the cabinet. Well, it started out smooth enough that, you know, he obviously, um, <laughs> Club things up pretty badly, uh, and you know, to be asked to leave uh, the way he did, and then to you know, kind of be shown that mercy on his way out the door, you know, and certainly not a legacy, really. I mean, you had to dig to find the information you did on him, so I just don't think that he deserves more for me, at least, than two points. I'm going to give him two. Well, and and I'll say, you know, there are some 
some positives to talk about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, we talked about his advocating and and lobbying Congress to create a naval hospital system. And this was something, you know, it's, it's not the, the most glamorous part of it, but it's important to have this infrastructure in place, this naval hospital Mm -hmm. system. And especially as they were going towards war, you've got to have something to be able to support the sailors who are injured and to try and help them to rehabilitate either to, you know, doing due diligence and, and letting them live the rest of their lives or from a war standpoint, you want to get them back up to speed so that they can get back out on the ships. Mm -hmm. So that was definitely an important legacy. And then also this idea of professionalism and, you know, even though it's a, a trope that, you know, oh, those rowdy sailors, there was some truth to it. Unless mm-hmm. you have somebody who is advocating for, you know, we need to be professionals. We need to have standards. We need to have a certain dignity and air to create the sense of a professional Navy. And so he did play a role in that. Okay. However. However. The big however. <laughs> the big however. As you said, he was basically run out the door. Mm-hmm. He had everybody. He had his fellow cabinet members. He had naval officers. He had Congress. Everybody was saying, this guy needs to go. I mean, when you've got naval officers not waiting for orders, just committing gross insubordination by just doing their own thing you things have gone off the rails my friend here oh yeah (laughs) oh yeah things have gone off the rails friend hamilton also the fact that he was obviously filling offices with people who it was just his political benefit these were Mm -hmm. supporters these was these were folks from south carolina this was to benefit him he was abusing the office which again we'll we'll talk more about in our next round but he was also appointing folks who couldn't do the job yeah yeah he was issuing these contracts for that he couldn't even keep up with the money that was going in and out of the navy department and was paying more for shoddy stuff yeah. at a time of war when you need, you know, it could be a, a matter of life or death for these sailors that you're sending out to fight for the nation. Just everything the, you're not getting many points here. You have, everybody has turned against you. Mm-hmm. So all of that to say, I think I'm going to match you with that too. Okay. You know, we've got a couple of good points. We had a couple of things. He was initially able to get the naval officers on board. And and we'll see as we go along, you know, the, the first couple of secretaries in the Navy had at least some merchant background. They had some naval background. And so they they were able to run their department well. Hamilton was at least initially able to get their support. But we're going to see other secretaries of the Navy that are like Hamilton completely unfit for office and would not get that level of support from Naval officers. But 
he loses it. Right. He, it just, by the time he leaves, it is, it, it is bad. So it's a hot mess. It is a hot mess. So the fact that he's getting four points in this category is good. I mean, I, I think, I think we may even be a little more generous with him yeah. than we should be on this. But, you know, I, I, for me, I think a two, that, that feels about right. Yeah, I'm, I'm taking my cue from, from Madison. I'm just trying to be, you know, as, as nice as I can here. Um, so, yeah, I feel good with a two on this one. But in our next round, and be ready <laughs> to get those oh, snap yeah. judgments ready. So right now, he is at 13 points total. Right. But in the hot seat round, this round discusses any mm-hmm. disgraceful behavior of our actions committed by the cabinet member. This disgrace does not have to be during their tenure of office in the cabinet, but I think we've already said there are definitely some things to talk about while he was secretary of the Navy. Oh yeah. And in this round, we can deduct up to 10 points each. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Matt, uh, this, this, yeah, this is not going to be good. This is not going to be good. No. Uh, Mr. Hamilton, get ready. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, from the from the uh, the slave labor of his, you know, plantation or, or whatever. All the, and I guess that was just the the nature of the time. But still, just looking at that in hindsight, and then of course all the yeah. things you just mentioned during his uh, time at, on the cabinet. I it's going to be hard not to go all 10, but I'm I'm going to be a little bit on the generous side and I'm probably going to go with a negative seven, negative seven, negative seven. And that's the thing. And and you so we've already brought up quite a few points in terms of his cabinet tenure. So, mm-hmm. you know, mismanagement, gross mismanagement and negligence, gross mismanagement. Mm hmm using his office and abusing his office for personal gain, helping Mm -hmm. out his friends with contracts and appointments, delaying on taking key Mm -hmm. actions of issuing orders in a timely manner. And then, then there's the matter of his inebriation. Yeah. Now we know Nowadays, that alcoholism, there is more to it than just, you know, you. this is just a weak-willed person. And so, right. you know, I, I don't know how much we really want to take that into account, but it also contributed to his failure and the potential risk that he was placing the Navy, placing his charge in. Mm-hmm. We also have the issue of his enslavement of individuals, which of course, you know, we've talked about, we've had other slave owners as cabinet mm-hmm. members in the past. We've talked about this issue and, you know, there's no quantifying the, the barbarity and, and cruelty and evil of slavery. Right. But in this case, we also have the fact that he had mismanaged his finances to the point yes. that creditors were selling off people by the tens and twenties. And as we, I think, are aware, 
more than likely they were not taking into account that, you know, okay, well, we're selling this person who is the mother of this person or Mm -hmm. the son, the child of this person. They were likely ripping apart families. God, you know, we don't know for certain, but likely that was happening. And it was due to his financial mismanagement as an individual. So that Mm -hmm. in and of itself is also quite shameful. Yes, it is. This is actually, this is, this is one of the, the biggest ones that we've had to date. We've got, we've got personal scandal. We've got political scandal. We've got all of this scandal Mm -hmm. and, and gross negligence in office. So I'm not going to go to a full 10, but I think I'm going to go with a negative eight. Okay. Just because I, I just, I, I really, this is, this is not good. Not at all. Not at all. So with that, we have Paul Hamilton in the negative in the mm-hmm. red yeah. with a negative two. Thus far, total. Wow. He does have a chance to pick up a few more points because our next round is tenure of office. This is the mm-hmm. entire time that a cabinet member served in a full-time capacity. And so he was Secretary of the Navy. Mm-hmm. He was Secretary of the Navy from May 15th, 1809 until January 1st, 1813. And so rounding, you know, we round to either up or down. And in this case, Mm -hmm. we're going to round up. And so he will get four more points, which puts him back in the positive. Okay. We do have our bonus rounds here. (laughs) Oh my goodness. But Paul Hamilton does not qualify for any of those bonus points because he did not serve in more than one full-time cabinet position. He only served as secretary of the Navy. He did not serve as a full-time cabinet member in more than one presidential administration. He was Mm -hmm. only in the Madison administration. And thank heavens for all of us. He did not in any way, shape, or form come near to becoming president. Yeah. How could he? Uh, He he was definitely probably one of the last people that you would want as president, but he definitely, there was no chance, no way he was getting there. So with that, Paul Hamilton finishes this episode with a grand total of two. Two points. Two points. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he could have had, had he been a good person and effective at his role, he could have had a total of 40 points. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, so he could have had, he could have had 40 points. And well, then, more than that, I guess. Yeah, even more than that with tenure of office or if any of the other bonus points would have come into play. But mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, this was, yeah, he he's a two. He's he's a number two. Oh. <laughs> he, he is officially, he is officially a number two. Okay. I'm trying to keep it PG here. So. <laughs> and so I am doing a quick scan. Paul Hamilton has also earned the distinction of being thus far the lowest points total ever since we've been doing this. He is now at the very bottom. 
of the rankings of a seat at the table. Are y'all going to name any more ships after this dude? (laughs) The fact that he got that many ships named after him, it was just because he was Secretary of the Navy and somebody found his name on the list. (laughs) Goodness gracious alive. But Alex, we do, we do, I'm pretty sure I know how this is going to go, but I do have to ask. Yeah. After all I've shared about Paul Hamilton's life and career and what we've discussed, Mm -hmm. this, this, ride that we've been on through his career and legacy. Do you think that Paul Hamilton is notable enough or impactful enough to earn a seat at the table of the cabinet all-stars? No, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. Um, and I, I, I got to say, you know, as scandalous as his career was, you know, in the cabinet leading up to the cabinet, his personal affairs, I feel sorry for him in, in a way. Um, uh, especially with losing his son, what about a year before he actually died? He died at such a young age. He just had all the scandal coming at him from, you know, all different angles. And granted it was due to his mismanagement and ineptitude, but you got to feel sorry for the dude, but heck no, 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 absolutely no. not. No. Well, and, and that it, it was interesting working on this episode and realizing just how much was coalescing around the mm-hmm. same time for him. And, Yet you do have that that pang of, oh, I mean, I just I, I feel you have that pang of feeling uncomfortable, like, oh, my gosh, this this guy. But also this guy, he he yeah. he bears some responsibility for this. Oh, yeah. He created his own problems. But we also and this is something that I'm finding and, you know, I've talked about offline and talked about as I've been researching the Madison presidency, the fact that Madison, so the war, the declaration of war came in June, 1812. It took him Mm -hmm. over half a year to finally decide, Hey, this guy needs to go after everybody, his trusted advisors, Monroe. Yeah. Yeah. Jefferson. Everybody is saying you really need to get rid of this guy. Because you need somebody who can effectively run the Navy Department. Right. The fact that it took Madison over half a year to finally get to the point of getting him out. A congressional investigation is going on. Everything is going awful. He's, we're getting accounts of him being publicly inebriated. This guy should have gone a long time ago. And so, yes, he should have. You know, in part, Hamilton bears some responsibility for not saying, you know what, I'm really not qualified for this position. Mm-hmm. We're about to go to war. I probably just need to resign. Mm-hmm. But Madison has some responsibility and some culpability in this as well. Oh, he yeah. should have said, you know what, I'm firing you or you can resign, whatever. We need to make a change. It wasn't until Congress forced the issue that the president said, okay, I guess you've got to go. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, there, there is no way Paul Hamilton deserves a seat at the table. He is definitely not one of the cabinet all-stars. He is whatever the other seat is, whatever the other Mm -hmm. table is, the, the table of disgrace. Yeah. That's where your seat is. My friend in the hall of shame, he's got a seat at the table in the hall of shame. Yeah, this is definitely. Are you going to create a hall of shame? 
I, I think I think we should create a hall of shame. I think that Paul Hamilton is definitely one of the first people to be. I mean, and and just the fact that we had just this much scandal. I've we really haven't had this, you know, in a figure that his Wikipedia page and the page that you were talking about on the the Navy website. Yeah, the, you know, for a guy who's typically summed up in one small paragraph there was a lot of there 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 was you know this isn't even a a jefferson where there's you know we criticized him for so many things because we've got so much material on him even with so little material on paul hamilton most of it's just bad (laughs) and it kind of makes you wonder why are they giving him uh what do they call it a mulligan because, you know, there's not much on him. Yeah. They still, even after the fact, named how many ships after this guy? It's like, okay, where's the disconnect here? So, I don't know. Maybe Madison's generosity or just willingness to kind of turn a blind eye for so long. And then, then even when push came to shove and you got to go, still letting kind of leave with somewhat of a little bit of dignity. I don't know if all that kind of coalesced into this, but yeah. He he definitely damaged goods. Damaged goods. Yeah. Yeah. And it's sad. Very sad. Yeah. Well, and and, and you did bring up a, a interesting point, Alex, because that's something that I've I've seen increasingly so. And I, I it's not really in standard accounts of the Madison presidency, but Madison was very much a schemer. He was somebody mm-hmm. who could work behind the scenes to make things happen, could find reasons to make things happen. And when it came down to it, when he had somebody, you know, and I, I definitely, I disagree with McKee talking about, you know, was he a scapegoat? No, Paul Hamilton was not a scapegoat. No, not at There all. were other scapegoats in the mad the story the traditional story of the Madison administration you get like the the Robert Smiths you get like William Eustace even is somewhat of a scapegoat this is not a scapegoat but Madison was not adverse to making folks scapegoats but you you really have to wonder like what was it and we don't have that much information it could be that you know they had gotten rather close while he was in the cabinet. And so, mm-hmm. okay, well, this is my friend. Uh, you know, I really, he needs to go, but I'm going to try and make it as cushioned, give him as much of a golden parachute as I can. Yeah. So, and again, like we don't know, I could see that being the case and that this is part of the reason why he hasn't, he's received criticism, but not, we haven't really heard most of the stuff until now. Right. And it's important, you know, and this is part of what my aim is with presidencies is to bring this to light. You know, we've got some figures that like Robert Smith, we ultimately came to the conclusion he was better than the traditional accounts. There's really more mm-hmm. that's been left out that we should talk about. That's good. Mm-hmm. In this case, we need to talk about this bad because it speaks to corruption. It speaks to things that are wrong in the system. It speaks to, Mm -hmm. and knowing that it 
was even in this early age, this wasn't just a gilded age thing. This wasn't just a Jacksonian era spoil system. This was happening at this point. And we need to understand that and have that as part of our conception of the larger scheme of presidential history, because then it makes all those others. Okay. Well now we can see it wasn't just, it didn't just start then Mm -hmm. it was building. Yeah. Yeah. Hamilton built something. All right. (laughs) He built something. He built a house (laughs) of cards. And then it all came tumbling down. Mm -hmm. Well, Alex, I think that we have talked about Paul Hamilton as probably more than most anybody in the last 200 years has talked about Paul Hamilton. Yeah. And, you know, this has definitely been, it was lots of bad stuff, but also quite, you know, this is, this is a scandalous, fascinating history, at least to me. And I hope, I hope you feel the same. Oh yeah. As I said, I had enough, no idea what to expect other than the little paragraph that I read. So I had no inkling that there would be this much scandal and uh, just ultimately tragedy in this guy's life. So yeah, uh, it's, it's very interesting. And again, sad um, on many accounts. Yeah. I mean, so, so much, so much damage done by, Mm -hmm bad choices by ineptitude by gross negligence yeah yeah but alex i cannot thank you enough for coming on presidencies on this episode for hearing me talk about paul hamilton thank you so much for your insights for the conversation for your perspective and maybe if you're interested we can get you on again I think that could happen. And I, I kind of feel, you know, I, I, my sympathies kind of took over. I, I felt like I would have been a lot more judgmental about this guy, but for some reason, the, the, the tragedy is kind of speaking to me uh, more. And obviously he was inept and, and, and corrupt and all that, but it just, again, it's just kind of a, a sad story, but I would love to be back on and maybe we can discuss someone not quite as scandalous or even more scandalous that could be real judgmental about (laughs) (laughs) and there are definitely some figures that yeah yeah there's not you you feel no shred of sympathy for them they are just Mm -hmm. awful 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 people yeah and paul hamilton may could have been one of those we may just not know enough about how awful he was but anyway Again, I thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for being on. And and we'll talk offline about possible future collaborations. I would love it. But until then, I'd also like to say a big thank you to the audience. I hope you have found our conversation exciting and have learned more about this guy who usually just gets a couple of sentences. You know, And I hope that this has helped to reshape your your thoughts about the Madison presidency have helped give you some insight. I hope it proves beneficial to you. I'd love to hear your thoughts. You know, I'm always available on social media. I'm available on Facebook at presidencies on Twitter at presidencies eight, nine and on Instagram as presidencies podcast. That's all one word. You can listen to more episodes at presidencies podcast. Again, all one word.com. Please feel free to reach out. Let me know what you think. And until next time, stay safe and healthy.
Be kind to one another and take care, dear friends. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.